For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, uh, before we get started, I have a quick word from our sponsor, lynda.com. If you've been making New Year's resolutions to improve yourself, pick up new skills, or just have fun, uh, you could go to lynda.com and find the courses that are now being used by over 1 million people spread across 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, business, uh, plus software like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. It's all taught by experts. And when you have an account, you can take as many of the classes you want, all for the same price. But that price is going to be zero if you take our 10-day free trial by visiting Linda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash long form. You'll be helping support the show, plus getting yourself 10 days of access to every course on Lynda.com, even if you're on your iPhone or Android device, plus all the new courses they add every week. Um, some stuff I thought looked pretty interesting is there's a podcasting with GarageBand course, a getting things done course, and a grammar fundamentals course, which I could probably use. Um, do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for that trial at lynda.com slash long form. Thanks, Linda. Now on to the show. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, guys. What's going on? Rainy Mondays. Winter rain. It's, it's the worst. It's the fucking worst. I'm having some kind of an allergy on my face that's uh, causing my lips to sizzle and my skin to splotch. It seems like it's stalled out, I can't out, see though. a thing. Oh, it's really going to be, it's gonna be uh, a brutal irony if the shrimp has come back to haunt you. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to address that, uh, that eventuality. We'll address that in a later podcast. Yeah, shrimp cast. Uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week I interviewed Alex Bloomberg, who uh, many people will know from This American Life and Planet Money, uh, and maybe his latest venture, which is his first for-profit venture. He has started a podcasting network called Gimlet, and uh, he's doing a show in true, like, Alex Bloomberg fashion, about the founding of his company, which is called Startup. Uh, and it's, like, next to Serial, it's the hit podcast of 2014. Definitely. Well, and uh, Gimlet does another podcast called Reply All uh, that Max and I were guests on a couple weeks ago. It's true. Check that, check that out. Uh, yeah, so we talked a lot about, I think Alex is our first radio person that we've had on the podcast. So we talked a lot about both, like, how you make a radio story and also then quite a bit about the podcasting industry. Boom times in podcasting. Not our yeah. first radio person, though. We had Starley on. 
Oh, true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I don't remember anything from 2012. That's true. That was a long time ago. 2012? Yeah. I've been doing this podcast for a long time. Good God. But as a, as a general rule, I think we're starting to see um, more overlap between people who are doing uh, reporting in podcasts and in print and video. So uh, we're going to try and keep abreast of that and uh, have on people who are doing interesting stuff. Convergence. Yes. Synergy. <laughs> Synergy. What about sponsors? Uh, we have a new sponsor. I'm excited about this sponsor. You guys are excited about this sponsor, I know, because both of you are the proud owners of a new alarm system. Yeah. Thanks to Alarm Grid. Yeah. Alarm Grid is a DIY security company. I set up my alarm. I don't know if you guys have set up your alarms yet. It's super easy. They send you an alarm. Uh, it's like 10 bucks a month. You can use it with any service, but they are like a gimmick-free, no-hassle alarm company. Yeah, and there's like there's kind of no lock-in to it, right? Because they, they give yeah. you the stuff and you can plug it into any any alarm system. That's their whole thing is like the security game is kind of rigged. Yeah. And they're trying to give you the like straight-ahead this is a security system you can cancel anytime. This is what it costs. There's no extra weird surcharges. Uh, it's pretty great. Yeah, I, I like it. I don't have any. I don't think I have any stuff worth stealing, but I put it on for my yeah, cat. As soon as I get well, anything worth stealing, steal my cat. Well, you do have a fancy cat. That's what I'm talking about. Someone tries to steal my cat. They better watch out. He's like half because I got one of these things. <laughs> Alarmgrid.com. Uh, go check them out. We're very very happy to have them sponsoring the show. Wow, I, I, that whole time I was trying to think of a good transition from a security alarm to newsletters, and I just came up blank. So I'm just going to say Tiny Letter is the best way to start an email newsletter. It's simple. Uh, it'll get you writing, which is what's the point of communicating with other people and spending instead of spending your time uh, trying to set up some kind of crazy mailing list. So thanks, Tiny Letter. And I got a quick uh, plug, plug for the latest out of a story, which is called Company 8. It's by Matthew Pearl. Uh, it's the oldest story we've ever done. It's from the 1830s. It's basically about the origins of firefighting in uh, America and the one man who fought to make it happen. Uh, it's a pretty incredible story. So check it out on our website, adivis.com. Uh, here's Max and Alex Bloomberg. Alex Bloomberg. Welcome to the welcome to the podcast. We are recording this at your office, not at my office, yes. and I'm already getting radio tips. It's fantastic. <laughs> exactly. This is my whole. Uh, one of the things I'm very excited to talk to you about is I feel like this could be a self improvement hour. I feel I feel like I could I could become better at this just in the course of our hour. Well, I could teach you a lot about mic placement. That's true. And so I have all these questions that are kind of like somewhat parallel questions to writing, mm-hmm. but for radio, which I haven't been able to ask anyone. And um, I saw uh, Matt Lieber, mm-hmm. who's your- ooh, My co-founder. Co-founder. You call him co-founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I saw Matt Lieber on uh, Monday night at a uh, bar, and I told him I was going to interview you, and I asked him what I should, should ask you. And uh, he said, everyone in our office talks about good tape. Like it's God, and he started talking about the the reverence you guys have for uh, good tape, and so I was I was hoping maybe we could start and you could explain to me what good tape is. All right, well, good tape first of all starts with not having the peas pop. You <laughs> keep fucking it up. No, that's no, right. Just stay right there. Okay. All right. Uh, but there are actually people. Just as an aside, I think there's like a lot of people in the radio community that over fetishize like sort of like mic placement and like getting the perfect sort of intimate sound at the expense of like story. Like worry so much about the the tech that they don't actually yeah, focus on the and person. Like it's room. very sound rich or whatever, and it's you know fucking boring or <laughs> incomprehensible or something like that. You know. So so when I guess when we talk about good tape, what we're talking about is like a. Mo- 
moment that sort of happens in an interview that's like arresting for whatever reason. Either it's arresting because the, there's some sort of it was like it's like a raw emotional moment or it's arresting because like it was unexpected or something surprising happened or good tape also is like just somebody who's telling like a really compelling story. How is good tape different than just a good conversation? We've been talking for a while. Like, uh, how is it different? When it's for the radio, yeah, we haven't had any good tape yet. Nothing, not, not yet. No, no, not and anything. You know, not anything that we. No, I mean, it's been, it's been like so. So when we're talking about good tape, like I want to distinguish, like sort of like there's a couple of different kinds of sort of like tape out there, and so like a lot of podcasts are pretty good because it's like people talking in a normal way, and they're like having a nice interaction, and they're they're talking sort of honestly, and they, and like there's nice interaction. So that's that's one element of good tape was when you can sort of feel like the camaraderie, you can feel that like sort of like the intimacy. So in that sense, I think so far we've had a pretty good tape conversation. I'll let you know when we get some good tape. Uh, <laughs> okay, that'd be, that'd be good. You can just give me but, like a little like a uh, pet. <laughs> but uh, but I think when we're talking about it, we're talking about like the moment, like the moment from the interview where you were sort of like where that oh that was good. That that was where like something crystallized or something felt powerful or something felt like where you would never stop listening. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time now. Do you know that as soon as it's happening? Are you, like, editing in your head as you're talking to somebody? Now I do. And Well, one, I know it better. Two, I now know how to engineer it better to make sure that it, that it happens a little bit better. I mean, it's hard to get it to happen, but, like... Now I know, like early on, like this, you know, the experience that you have when you first start on radio is that you go out and you do your story and you're really excited about it. You're doing your story and you get this, you've gotten an assignment from some public radio station somewhere. You go out, you do the story and you come back and you- You guys should know that Alex is doing like a little jig while he talks. You go, <laughs> you know, get your kit together and uh, you go out and you do the interview and you're, it's like uh, for some three minute or four minute story on the public radio station about zoning laws or whatever. And you end up talking and like your, it's your first story. So you talk to the guy for like an hour and a half and like it's some sort of like, you know, county comptroller who's like nobody's ever talked to me for an hour and a half before in my life and you're like I got some really good stuff and then you go back and you listen to it and it's just like it was like all like utterly boring or you go out and you talk to somebody and they say something sort of like pretty amazing he's like you know like you know that was back before like we had the you know the giant comptroller scandal of 96 or whatever and you're like, yeah, yeah, but anyway, tell me more about like the zoning rules, and uh, and then you go back and and you you're listening to your tape and you realize, wait, why didn't I do a follow up about the zone about the comptroller scandal? Like that's the interesting part. Like I want to hear more about the comptroller scandal, and I would have that over and over and over again, where it was like painful to listen back to my tape. I would be listening back to the tape and be like, oh my god, ask this follow. It's an obvious follow up question, like an obvious follow up question, like why or how did that make you feel or say more about that like just that like somebody says something interesting and, and I'd be like oh my god ask the follow up ask the follow up and you'd have this mounting sense of dread that you didn't ask the follow up and then you just breeze right by it and you like make some stupid joke or and like that happened over and over and over again and that's how you learn how not to miss those moments and then instead to like actually dwell on those moments and sort of like stick with them until you get good tape right because one thing that's different about the writing is like you can always call the person back yeah. Right. You can always like get the quote. You can also always ask that follow up. But if you only have that moment with them, uh, that recorded moment. Yeah. You sort of have to get it right the first time. Yeah. You can even go back. I mean, I've done that before where I've like blown the interview and then I go back and I'm like, you know, I listened back and I was like, I realized that there's a couple of follow up questions. And sometimes that works, actually. It often works because often it's like not something people don't want to talk about. They just have to be primed. Right. They have to be asked the question, you know. So it's a lot of times it's just sort of like being able to ask the right question. At the yeah. right time. I guess like I'm I'm thinking about it in terms of the podcast too cuz it like it would be weird if you and I sat and talked for an hour and then I called you up tomorrow and I was like I forgot to ask you one thing and then we like yeah. cut it into the middle. Yeah. It would feel like 
sort of disingenuous or something. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm interested in how you've gotten better as a listener. Because missing the Comptroller scandal of 96, that's just like you're just thinking about your next question, not well, it's like, really listening to what they say. So, I mean, the, the real example is sort of like what you do if somebody starts talking about something difficult. And like what will happen is somebody will, will start to talk about something. And this happened a lot in the beginning. You get to something and then somebody unexpectedly gets emotional about it. And you're like, whoa, what's going on here? And your normal human reaction is to sort of like comfort and steer away, you know, comfort and be like, oh, I'm sorry, let's move on. And what you need to do if you want good tape is to say, talk more about how you're feeling right now. And it feels like a horrible question to ask. It feels like I'm like going against my every instinct as a decent human being to like go towards the pain that this person is experiencing right now for whatever reason. So that's a lot of what it was, like sort of like not recognizing the emotional moment. And then if the emotional moment happens, not shutting up. That was another thing that I did all the time in the beginning. It was like I wouldn't just let, I would just like rush to fill the silence and not just let the person sort of like, they start to say something and then it's like this. there's this uncomfortable like three minutes or three seconds of like, three seconds of dead air, like, Let's just do it right now. Hold on. Ready? That was three seconds. It's like, it's yeah, like uncomfortable, heavy. right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Right? I was like, like, I just have to move in my chair. <laughs> right? You're yeah. like, I want to fill that sudden, you know, it's, it's scary. And so you do the, so like you, you want to fill that space, you know, and when in fact that's good tape, that's probably a good moment. Probably that, that little three seconds of silence probably will be a good tape of this thing, you know, cause it's like unexpected. It seems like you're doing that in your head. As we're talking, you're yeah. sort of editing this conversation in your head. Yes. Was that something you were able to do early? Oh, no. That's, a, that's new. Well, I mean, I learned it over time. Your dog just farted. <laughs> awkward, awkward pause. Awkward pause. By, I brought my dog to your office in this tiny studio, and I believe she just farted. <laughs> that was a good day. Awkward pause. That was an unexpected. That was that was something unexpected. Thank you, Reba, for breaking this <laughs> she, up. She's your, she's a good producer. Uh, it didn't just happen. I mean, it was like it was something. I've been doing this now for like forever. You know, I feel like I'm now like sort of a lifer. Like I've been doing this since '97, I guess, basically. If you depending on how you count, which is getting up on 20 years. And so, you know, there was a long learning curve of sort of like doing it, going out, and getting tape, logging the tape yelling at myself for not asking the right follow-up, coming to grips with the fact that I didn't ask the right follow-up, you know, and then not having anything to show for my, you know, two hours of interview. And then gradually you'd start to recognize like, oh, no, that was a good moment and that was a good moment. So it, it took a while. But now I feel like it became, when did it become sort of a, almost second nature? It was probably like seven, eight years ago where I was like, where I really felt like, okay, now I, I know what I'm going for. So it was like uh, 10 years. Yeah. Ten years to become like a radio natural. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. That's the rule. <laughs> it's the Gladwell rule. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the beginning. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in how you got your start doing this. I guess I got my start through uh, the written word. I was an intern at Harper's. That was my first sort of like job in journalism back in 94, I believe. And um, uh, I was a private school science teacher for um, four years. Before Harper's Chicago. or after Harper's? Before and during. I had a brief run as a nonprofit bureaucrat right out, of, right out of college. But then I was like, then I was a job, then I got my job as a teacher and I was a teacher for four years. And one summer, 
uh, we had the summers off, and one of the summers I had an internship at Harper's. But you were, even while you were teaching and uh, working as a social worker, you were interested in trying to do this work? I, w- I was interested in this work, but I was not, I did not try to do it because for some, somehow I got it in my head that like somebody like me could never do this work. I don't, I don't know why. I, I was very, I grew up in Cincinnati, I went to public school in Cincinnati. In retrospect, I have no idea why it seemed like such a far-fetched idea that I could ever have an actual professional job in the media. You know, like imagine that an upper middle class Jewish kid gets a job in the media. <laughs> How would that ever happen? You know How what did I mean? Alex Bloomberg do it. <laughs> but like it somehow I didn't it didn't occur to me. I didn't know anybody like you know, I didn't You didn't know anyone who was doing it. I didn't know anyone who was doing it. I didn't know anyone I didn't know how anyone did it. It didn't nobody I knew had a job like people were like you know, whatever dentists or lawyers or whatever they were, but they were nobody worked in the media. Like it wasn't the, like a job. It didn't seem like a, it felt like saying like, yeah, I'm going to be a a, a a rock star. I'm going to be a member of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> it felt like, that far away. Well, yeah, sort of. Like it was like, well, they have there are five members and they don't need the no, they don't, you're not there. They're not no job opening. They don't need the yeah, Jewish kid yeah, from Cincinnati. Exactly. It just felt like that, you know. And then I started to meet people. Basically, I had a girlfriend who grew up in New York and went to an Ivy League school, and for whom this was like not a crazy thing to think that you would one day have a job at a magazine. <laughs> uh, and so that's when I started to think like, oh, well, maybe I'll just apply for this. And then I learned about the internship, and I'd read I read The New Yorker and Harper's all the time, like religiously, like I loved it, like I was a big reader and a big consumer of that. And so then I was just like, well, maybe I'll apply. And then I applied. And there's a pretty, uh, pretty serious line of Harper's people who've been like through this podcast. I feel like yeah, it's like half the people who've come on the show started at Harper's or right. had their time there. Or whatever. Well, I feel like Harper's in the like in the late '80s, early '90s was sort of like the Yankees, you know, like you know the heydays. Like there was just like a lot of heavy hitters yeah. there, you know. It was like the Yankees, except uh, no one was getting paid like they were on the Yankees, <laughs> and, right? And. Uh, and everybody was, you know, much less coordinated and a lot weaker. <laughs> yes, Because <yes. laughs> I did play on the Harper softball team, and I can tell you, in that way, we were nothing like the Yankees. Yeah, getting waxed by high times. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's that happened, and then I came back and I taught for another year, and then I got a job as the administrative assistant at This American Life. How'd you get that job? I sort of aggressively sent them a bunch of sort of pitches that were horrible. Ira reached out to me and was like, I don't. I just need somebody to help with, like, administrative stuff. I was like, sure, I'll do it. So I did it. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's Alarm Grid. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've never actually owned an alarm system before. Uh, And part of that, admittedly, is because I've never actually owned anything nice enough to protect. But the other reason is that setting up an alarm system always seemed like a huge ordeal. Crazy pain in the ass. It was like, uh, felt like getting cable installed, only worse. Um, Alarm Grid realized that. They knew it was a heavy lift, and so they decided to make the process of getting an alarm super easy. Their whole focus is consumer experience. That means that installation is a breeze. I am in no way handy, like negative handy, and I set up my alarm in five minutes this week. They've got this really easy-to-follow YouTube video. If you hit a snag, you can call them. They'll walk you through it. Customer support is totally free with Alarm Grid. Uh, Free is actually an important word. All of their pricing is totally straightforward. Everything is upfront. There's no gimmicks. There's no activation fees. There are no contracts, no hidden charges. Everything is upfront and clear, and you can get monitoring going for just $10 a month with Alarm Grid. So go check them out. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show, alarmgrid.com. And let's get back to Alex. (laughs) 
why are you interested in this American life? Why radio and not like a magazine? At that point, I didn't. I wasn't interested in radio. I was just interested in sort of like a job where you could tell the kind of stories that I wanted to. Like, were you writing tell. pitches all over Chicago? Were you pitching the Reader in Chicago Magazine? Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I was. I was. I was. I was looking for all kinds of different jobs. But even at that at that time, like This American Life had already started to have like a you know a bit of a buzz. I think it already won like a, a Peabody at that point, and people knew about it. It was like a, a cool new thing that was happening. So, so you show up your uh, administrative assistant at This American yeah. Life, and uh, I went back and listened to like some some early Alex Bloomberg episodes. Oh, oh God, <laughs> they, they they sound pretty similar actually. Really? Yeah. There's like. There, I, I feel like there's maybe a little bit more like um, excitement. Not not excitement. Excitement is not the right word. Yeah, the look on your face <laughs> made me say excitement is not the right word. But it kind of is. You're like you're like uh, wide eyed. Yes, you're, you seem to be really excited to be doing it. Yes, I was. What like, what like which ones did you? What were you listening to? Uh, like a radio station rebranding itself. Oh yeah. And there is this air which like I uh, emphasized with some of like from, I remember from like early newspaper days of just like. Um, you seem to be just like kind of shocked that you were talking about this on the radio. Yeah. So the backstory to that story is sort of like I came in and like so I, t- I, I at this point I was a freelancer. So I'd been I'd worked there as the administrative assistant for a while. And I just because there was nobody there and it was like I, I have it's funny because I'm going through the same thing right now starting this company. And like we have like we're just trying to do so much and we don't have enough people. And like anybody like anybody who's like a warm body or like, hey, can you do this? You know, and like and that happened back then. Like it was just Ira and I think three producers and and there was just not enough you know people to go around. And so he like grabbed me and threw me. He was like, I'm trying to produce a story about I'm trying to produce a show about Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago. Can you just help produce it? While you're doing all your other administrative stuff, and I was like, obviously, of course, I can. So, like, I worked to try to help, you know, produce it with air quotes. Like, I had no idea what I was doing, but like, I booked interviews and I sort of like organized the tape and I learned how to cut on Pro Tools and stuff like that. So I was doing all that, and then we ended up producing the Harold Washington Show, which was like a train wreck of a production week, and like it almost didn't get on the air, but it finally did, and and like it ended up being, you know, sort of like an early hit of a show. And so I thought I was gonna. I thought, like, all right, I made it. This like is my you're a test. Man. Yeah. I've passed. I will now become an official producer. So I went to Ira afterwards, and he was like, hey, can you mail these you know, letters off or whatever? Like, wait, I thought I'm a producer now. And he was like, well, I, don't, I can't make you a producer. I, can't, I, don't, I don't have the money to make you a producer. And even if I could, I don't know if I, I would because, like, you know, maybe I would want to hire somebody else. And I really – and at the time, it was like – it was a little bit of a blow, but it was also really liberating. Like, that was a really good thing of him to tell me. And I was like, well, what would you – why wouldn't you hire me? Like, I just did the Harold Washington thing. And he was like, yeah, I know, but, like, there's other people who have lots more experience. Like, I would hire somebody like, I don't know, like Joe Richmond or somebody, you know, somebody who's been doing this for a while and knows what they're doing. And I was like, oh. And I was like, well, what would you want me to do to get experience? And he was like, I don't know, maybe, like, freelance a lot and just get a bunch of stories under your belt. So I was like, okay. So then I was like, okay, so I guess I'll quit then and try to do that. So I quit, and I, like, started freelancing. And so this was like that radio story was in, during the freelancing months, and uh, and like I'd sent them the idea, like I knew they were doing the show called First Day, and I'd like had been listening to this radio show, I'd heard it go off the air and reran itself, and uh, I came in and they did an interview, and then there had been some buzz about doing some sort of story without like non narrated, you know, just like sort of like just the voice without any narration, and somehow that got mixed up with like also giving the intern at the time, I don't remember who it was, but like a cutting exercise somehow. 
my interview became the focal point of both those impulses. And so, like, they're like, we're going to make this non-narrative and we're going to give it to the intern to cut. And so I remember, so, like, I'm, like, hyper in that one because, like, they cut out all the questions and all they left was my laughter. <laughs> so it's like, it's a really weird, I find it a really weird piece because like, it's obvious that I'm responding to somebody who's asking me all these questions. It's only obvious yeah. to you. It, oh, sounds, really? it sounded to me like you were just kind of like sitting in your car almost. And giggling to myself a lot. Pretty much. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and the giggling is what made me think like you seem pretty excited to be doing it. <laughs> yeah, because they cut out every single question. <laughs> Anyway, it's a fun it's a fun piece though, and it, it, the the tape was good. So that was what 1997 that you were sitting in your car giggling, so happy yeah, to be on the Yeah, 97, 98. Yep. And you were how old? I mean, I was old. I was like almost 30, I think, at this point. So this so, I, it's yeah. okay to be that excited yeah, when you're 30. Yeah, you yeah, shouldn't yeah. be ashamed of that. Yeah. And then for the next what 15 years, you were a producer at This American Life. Yeah. I got hired again in 99. So I was like, I freelance for like a year and a half, and I did a bunch of stories. It sounds like you were sort of getting experience in a bunch of places, and and Harper's and stuff, but how do you think working at This American Life uh, shaped you as a journalist? Well, in every way. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I, I learned so much from there. I think it's really like, it's funny, like, especially now running, you know, starting this company and, and sort of putting together long form podcasts, you know, journalistic podcasts. I realized there was like, it was, it was a pretty amazing shop. It was a pretty amazing boot camp for like how to do this kind of long form storytelling. I think I internalized a lot of the lessons. So so like everything that I know, what I think of as good tape, I think I learned from This American Life. Yeah, obviously, the way I talk has been inspired by my time at This American Life. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because yeah. I was like, I think that's like the thing I was kind of pussyfooting around asking. Yeah. But I went back and listened to those early ones in part to see whether you were talking the same way then as you do now, which is kind of this feels like this like this American life tone. Right. And it was pretty similar, even in like ninety seven. It like it sounded like you. I mean maybe more like giggling. You know, you develop there's a cadence, there's a house style that that like and, and so well the the trick is that like it's really hard to talk like yourself on the radio. Um, especially when you're reading a script that you've written. It's surprisingly difficult to sound like your natural self. And so what you have to do is you have to learn how to fake the real you on the radio. And in the beginning, that's really hard. And so what you end up doing is you end up impersonating. So one of the things that you do if, as a producer, I would do this all the time, is I would coach people to read. And if they were pretty bad readers, which most people are because they don't know how to do it, you have to just coach them and you give them – and you, you just like, no, try it this way. And then you give them the way you would do it and then they just parrot you better than they can do themselves. And then that becomes sort of their style. So that happened to me. Like it was just sort of like – and I think that's how a house style develops. Like you're learning how to be natural on – on the radio and being natural is not at all the same thing as just sounding like yourself. Do you now feel like you sound like yourself? Have you have you closed that gap? Well, now I feel like it's like it's it's impossible to tell. I've so internalized that house style that has become me. Like I've I can't tell if I've grown into it or it's it's become it's me. It's like taking you over. Yeah, I don't know. Am I the man or the mask? <laughs> I mean, it's but the house style is also kind of like Ira Glass's style. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you just went there immediately, so it was something you were aware of. Like, as you were moving along with the show, were you like, uh, man, I kind of like, gotta, I got I to gotta figure out my own thing? Oh, no. I mean, there's <laughs> so many things to figure out. I didn't, well, so partly is like, I didn't know it, and it's only, I still don't hear it, 
but it's everybody says it to me. Really? So I just have concluded that it must be true. So I'm all right with it. But I just never, I myself don't hear it at all. Like I think we sound utterly distinct. <laughs> so like that's part of the problem. It's like it, it, it's a it's a phenomenon that is you know <laughs> widely apparent to everybody who listens. But to me myself, I don't get it. And then also, there's just so many things to learn. You know, developing a style that was more my own was just sort of like so low on the list of priorities of sort of like how do I get better at this that it was like not even something that I necessarily thought about, yeah. Once you had people kind of coming up to you again and again and saying it, was it something you wanted, you like felt like you should like break off from? Like by that, by the time that I sort of accepted it as a fact, it was like, I had been fully baked. I am, I am who I am now. <laughs> there is no <laughs> I don't sound like him. He sounds you, like me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, going back through your archive, you're doing stories, all kinds of different stories. Uh-huh. Sort of seems like kind of whatever you're curious about, you're following. And then there's this point around the late 2000s where you start doing like the business stuff mm-hmm. and I'm interested in that moment and, and what what sort of prompted you to tackle those stories like it's funny like I th- I thought of it as that moment too but like I think even if you go back like I was surprised to see like I remember there was this one story that I did about like this bad stock tip that, that a friend gave me and um, that was like in 2002 or something like that. And I think even there, I was like, oh, I was sort of interested in sort of like how this world works. It's just such a mysterious world. And, and I felt like... Are you like a, were you like no. a financially savvy person? No, no, no. I don't know anything about money. And to this day, like my w- wife will tell you, like I don't know the value of a dollar. I literally don't know the value of a dollar. Like I don't... Somebody could... I could go into a store and there'd be like, it's $25 or it's $5 and I would not know the difference. Like <laughs> I don't know. I, I just can't pay attention to that kind of stuff. But I like... I like figuring out how systems work. Like I was a physics major for a while in college and I and I like I like explaining the rules of like how the rules that govern behavior. Uh and I feel like money is that for sure. Like there are these rules that govern behavior and they they involve the financial system. So I think that was part of what drew me to it. And then it was just sort of like it just happened to be the biggest story of our time. <laughs> you know, like it just like I had gotten into it like in 2005. I remember thinking for the first time like I was like what is going on? Like I the first time I was like a producer at This American Life bought a house and I was like, "Oh, how'd you how'd you buy a house?" cuz I knew what we both made and I was like, "I can't afford to buy a house." And uh and she was like, "Oh, we just got a loan. And I was like, well, didn't you have to put money down? And she was like, no, we didn't have to put any money down. And I was like, wait, you didn't have to put down a down payment? And the last time I'd ever heard of people buying or selling houses was like probably like in the in the 80s when I was in high school or something, like where like right. some like a, somebody's parents had bought a house or something like that. And then I'd gone to college and I'd been poor my whole life and renting and, and buying was never on the horizon. And then all of a sudden I had a nice job all of a sudden. And like, and here was this person who was buying a house. And I was like, oh, things have changed. I guess. The last time I checked in on this, which was like a decade and a half ago, <laughs> you had to have a down payment and now you don't seem now, to. Now they just give you yeah, a house. Now they just give you a house and a big house for a lot of money in you know downtown Chicago. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So that was the first thing. And then I was like, and then everybody I knew had this massive credit card debt. And I was just thinking like, what is going on? Like no, there's nobody's this, it's not going to get paid back. And so that started me down the road of like, what is happening? And then I got into the mechanics of it. And then, and then from that, I learned that most of the craziness was happening in the mortgage market, and I started getting into the mortgage market, and then that's sort of where I like became obsessed, like an obsessive about it. And it was like a true, like sort of like I would be up late at night reading finance and, and housing blogs, like just like I knew the commentators, commenters on the blogs by name, and I was like, oh, that guy always says this, you know, it was like that kind of thing. I don't know anything about writing for the radio. Uh-huh. Writing that story, how is that 
different maybe we could use that as an example i I literally know nothing about it like how right. it's different than writing a story for a magazine well there's a lot less punctuation <laughs> <laughs> i mean you're just it's a lot easier so i wrote i wrote magazines and i wrote radio for a while like i did both and like the radio so much of the work is done with the person's voice so good tape means that you as a writer get to be lazier because like so much of the scene has been established by the person talking so if there's a lot of emotion or if there's a lot of nuance or there's a lot of complexity and it comes across in the tape that's like a lot less work you have to do as a you know descriptively for in the writing and what you end up doing, and you also have to be a lot shorter. You have to be super brief. You can do a lot more with your voice. So if you look at radio scripts, it doesn't look like much is being conveyed. But if you listen to them, like there's a lot more. You can do a lot of work with your voice that you don't that you don't have to do on the page. My early scripts were like way, way, way more written. And as I've gotten older and you know more practiced at it, I, they're barely it's barely sentences anymore. It's like it's talking of, points. It's a lot. Of, well, it's, it's not. It's more than talking points. It's it's like you know you get the language that you want to say, you get it right, but it's like fragments. And, like, everybody who's in it is, does different things. Like, Ira, if you look at his scripts, it's sort of like, it's phrase, ellipsis, phrase, ellipsis, phrase, ellipsis, the whole paragraph. There's no, par- there's, no, there's no commas. There's no periods. There's no capital letters. It's just, like, phrase, ellipsis, phrase, ellipsis, phrase, ellipsis. And it'll be exactly what he says, but that's just how he writes it. So it's like every radio person almost invents their own punctuation. Uh, David Kestenbaum, who worked at Planet Money, who's, like, I think one of the greatest radio reporters around it's like all periods it's just like short declarative sentences period 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 just super short and like what i do is i i tend to do a lot of run-on sentences <laughs> that i'll just like stick a period in every i mean stick a, a, a comma in every once in a while it's a lot of commas and dashes but not many periods and then what's the editing process like at this american life i don't know if that's the same that you're using mm-hmm. planet money or gimlet but you write this thing like then do you go read it in front of everybody yeah and then you do a live read. So you like re- you you get your script, and then you read it, and then you play the tape from the computer, and then you read it some more, and then you play the next piece of tape from the computer. And and if there's like some sort of ambient sort of thing in there, you'll you'll say that. Or if you're imagining music coming up, you say music here, and then you just go on. So it's like a table read essentially. So that story comes out. Mm-hmm. It is a hit. Mm-hmm. Resonates. People like me listen to it and say like I finally understand what just happened. And I, I assume it was a pretty logical move then to start doing Planet Money and more money stuff. Or maybe you, maybe well, I, maybe I assume wrong. So Adam Davidson, my the co-reporter on that on the Giant Pool of Money, was like he was like this is this is amazing. Like we we now and he was at NPR and he'd been a correspondent at NPR and he was like we discovered something here. We have to we have to go big on this. Like there is a hunger now to learn this stuff and we should just like do a show that like sort of explains these complicated financial. So, and I was like, I don't know, man. This is like a once in a lifetime story, man. Like this was just like, <laughs> this is like you, you can't try to like. It's like trying to le- relive your glory days in high school or something like that. Like what you're trying to do. And like, I was not into it. And he was like very, very persuasive. And so I was like, okay, well, yeah, it's true. It's interesting. I've learned some stuff. So maybe we can do a show. So I, I, I sort of half committed to like one day a week working. And then we took all summer and we put together this one podcast that was going to be the first planet money podcast. And it was about, it was about bearing manufacturers in the United States and windmill manufacturers in China and some complicated story about how that supply chain was all linked together. I don't remember what it was a good story, but it was like not anything financial related or anything. So we had this whole thing set to go and then it was going to launch on a Monday. And then the weekend before that Monday, Fannie and Freddie collapsed. And, uh, and I was on vacation cause I was going to, I was going to supposed to be on vacation. So, like Adam came in that night and like went just flew to some like finance ministers conference and like threw together some crazy podcast about like what does this mean for the world and just started doing it all week and because then everything went to hell that week 
And then... And you were on vacation? I was on vacation. Then I got back and he was like, oh man, I've been working like 24 hours a day. <laughs> I'm so glad you're back. We got to do a big story. And so then we just like threw together this huge, this big story for This American Life, which was called Another Frightening Show About the Economy. And that was like a big hour. That's when we talked about the commercial paper market and credit default swaps. And we just did this like hour long explainer about like what the hell was going on. And then by by January, I was like, okay, this is a story that's like, you know, the world might be ending, you know, like as we know it. You know, this is like a big, big deal. Like things have gone. Uh, so this is like a story that I want to stay on. So that's when I had sort of committed fully to Planet Money. Was the idea just to apply that same style and approach to this kind of like world of financial trauma? I feel like I learned a lot of like rules about like how do you tell a long, complicated story on the radio. What are the at rules? This American Life. You have to pay really, really close attention to pacing. You have to go slow where you need to go slow. You want to have it be character-driven. You want to be looking for emotional moments, moments of humor, moments that sort of like the listener can connect to. And you want to be telling it in a, in a, in a super straightforward narrative. Like, you know, first this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Like, people are hardwired to listen to. Like, I went out the door this morning, and I was, like, walking to work, and I saw my neighbor, and then I looked up in the sky... And you know, I would never believe I saw, what I saw. And like people are going, "Well, what did you see?" You know, like it's like it's like you were hardwired to want to know what we saw, and like that's sort of the trick. You just want to sort of like do that over and over again in the story. And as long as you're doing that, you can tell a story about anything. I have more questions about audio engagement. Yes, and the future of audio engagement. Mm-hmm. We have not even mentioned this new thing that you're doing. Right. <laughs> you uh, went from Planet Money, and you have now started your own thing. Uh, I assume that most people listening to this podcast have also listened to your podcast. Right, although you can't assume. I think it's a fair assumption. Well, I mean, you know, like what I did on the last episode. Oh, right, with the serial thing. Yeah, yeah. I had this like thing on the last episode of Startup, which is the the podcast about the starting of my podcasting company. I I was like, you know, just as I started talking about serial, the super famous podcast, the the fastest growing, most popular podcast in history, launched by my friends and colleagues at This American Life. I started talking about serial on my podcast, Startup. And just as an aside, I was like, I'm sure everybody's heard of Serial, but I'll just do a perfunctory, here's what it is. And by the way, if anybody hasn't heard of Serial, tweet at me. And like, well over 100 people. Like, it's like almost 200 tweets now that I've gotten where I was like, the first time I've heard of Serial, regular listener to startup. I love this American life, never heard of Serial. Like, you just don't know what people know. Like, you, what I realized, and then I went and talked to like our audience, and, I, and it's just sort of like people come to you from all different angles and ways. It's really, it's really interesting. Okay, fine. Anyway, sorry. No, that's fine. Maybe someone is listening who has not heard your podcast, which is called Startup, and is about the starting of your podcast company, right. which is called Gimlet. Yes. Which is where we are right now. Yes. Gimlet headquarters. Gimlet headquarters. What do you think of cereal? <laughs> I saw you pause where you're like, I have, all these, I have all these interview questions that I want to ask him, but I also want to know what he thinks of cereal. Yeah, I do. I mean, well, I actually don't even really... I, this is a little disingenuous because you and I have actually talked about cereal before. Uh-huh. I sort of know what you think of cereal. What I don't know is how you feel about having started a podcast company the same like season <laughs> as cereal and it not um, being cereal. I feel amazing about that. Like I, cereal has done so much work for us. Like cereal has basically validated everything that I said at every single investor meeting. Like that there's a much bigger audience for the stuff than we had previously imagined that if you sort of like start if you're untethered from the institutions that came before you can find that audience, you can make programming that that audience will be super excited about. So and not to mention like 
you know, millions of people listened to Serial and like that was the first podcast ever. And they're like, oh, I like podcasts. What else is there? You know, and so like, the, you know, we're all benefiting from that. You know, do I wish that we'd launch Serial? Of course. But like, you know, <laughs> you know, the, don't want to get greedy. <laughs> uh, and I feel like I hope that we, you know, I hope that one day we can we will have a podcast that is as successful as Serial. Do you think there there's any chance we're in a podcast bubble? If we're in a podcast bubble, then podcasts would have to be a fad that will go away. You know, in or a way, just a bunch of people just listen to one, but they aren't going to listen to another one. Or a bunch of people were talking about one, one, and then didn't go, then didn't start listening. Yeah, to like more. maybe that was the peak. Yeah, I mean, do you, can you name another thing where that has happened? Like when, where there was one big hit in a medium, and then people, and then the, and then the medium disappeared. Disappear isn't isn't right. Isn't right. I mean, more like, and I'm not. I don't actually believe this. I, I right. think podcasts are a pretty good bet. But I I wonder if I, I'm worried if I have read people saying that, mm-hmm. you know, they were kind of it was kind of plodding along for a while, right? And now it's like it's having its moment, and you're a pretty big part of yeah its moment. I mean, obviously, you believe that it can con- continue to grow. Otherwise, you would not have started a company based right. on it continuing to grow. But I'm interested in, in whether you think there's a chance that maybe it, maybe it won't. Maybe maybe yeah. maybe that last episode of Serial is going to be the most listened to podcast ever. I don't know. I, I think I feel I still feel pretty bullish. Like this is making me and and partly part of what makes me feel like bullish is that this for me this didn't come out of nowhere. This was entirely predictable. Like that there would be a breakout hit because like I'd seen it happening at Planet Money. Like Planet Money, the audience was growing. I don't know, forty percent year over year. Every year that I was there, and then in the year after I was there, like it, like more than double, it like doubled essentially. That could have been coincided with my leaving. I don't know, but like <laughs> the Bloomberg I, effect. I, I, I hope I like to think that it was just more like sort of like you know these secular forces that are sort of like the podcast app shows up on the iPhone for the first time. More people are listening in their cars. The habit becomes you know it's just it's just easier now. People can do it now. What about this is like this week? I think CBS just said they're going to like start a podcast. Yeah, network. I heard that too. <laughs> is that good for you? I mean, is like is all of this stuff good? I think it's all good. I think that we're like at the point right now where like nobody's stealing market share from anybody at this point. Like, I think we're at the very early days. To me, it feels like you know back when like there was like a couple movies and they were all up a train going around a bend. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like we're still like pretty early. And like for in audio, it's like a lot of rediscovering because like there was this period where there was this golden age of audio in the 20s and 30s and then like it got destroyed by television. But I think that's where we're headed again. Like I think there's just like there's just all this capture time now where people want to be consuming media and you you know, you're running an errand, you're working out, you're driving, you're mowing your lawn, you're driving your car. You can't read and you can't watch but you can listen it's pretty obvious that that pie is going to grow a lot how do you think this sort of heavily reported heavily produced narrative journalism slice of the pie is going to do like i got here we talked for about two seconds we sat down we started talking our amazing editor jenna is going to like uh, make this sound great or at least Uh like as good as it could possibly sound and she will spend a decent amount of time doing that but It'll be up in three or four days. You know, right. like like it 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 it's pretty quick and dirty. It's gonna mm-hmm. get like uh, done and turned around. Well, and the, and the kind of stuff that you guys are doing is quite a bit more involved. Aaron and I were just on Reply All. This is like your first show. You know, and like that was a real process. We came back several times. Yeah. Alex reported the hell out of it. He was like, yeah. you know, it was a month 
probably yeah. putting that together. Right. Not, I mean, not working full time. Obviously. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, it, it was it just. It took a month to do. Yeah, totally. And I wonder whether, I don't know, like, maybe like the, the, the corollary is like reality TV. Like, what we're doing is reality TV to like, versus like scripted television or something. Like, does it hold appeal to do kind of two way talkers? I think podcasting has been, you know, made up primarily of that because that's been one of the few things that the that the business model can support uh, because the audience has been pretty small. So I think if the audience grows and you get the same CPMs, the same ad rates on a bigger audience than, than you in a smaller audience, that gives you, you can do more than, than, you know, it becomes financially viable to do more. There seems to be a link between the size of audience that you can hope to to attract and the the level of production that goes into something. Like if you look at the very top of iTunes, most of the stuff that's up there is sort of like is the stuff that, that takes the month to produce rather than, than like... Yeah, a lot know. of that is connected to This American Life, though. Right. I mean, the other thing that's very helpful to have is to launch your show on This American Life. Very helpful. <laughs> it's super very useful. Helpful. <laughs> I will not lie. That helps a lot. So, like, yeah. it, there's a question, I think, about whether it's the value of, like, the reported heavily produced or whether it's also, like, the Ira Glass Mafia. I think it's absolutely both. Like, you need both. Lots of podcasts have aired on This American Life, and they have different, they, they get different the iTunes rankings differently afterwards. And I'm thinking about stuff that doesn't have anything to do with Ira either. Like, Radiolab, yes, there was a story that was on This American Life from Radiolab, but I, don't, I, I think that would be, This American Life would never take credit for Radiolab's success. Freakonomics is another one uh, where, like, I don't think they've ever been on This American Life. They had another base, they had the Freakonomics books, but, like, I know it's interesting. Like you look at these big brands like The New Yorker, you would think like here's this renaissance of sort of long form journalism on the air with This American Life and Radiolab and all this sort of stuff and Freakonomics and Planet Money and all these people who are doing it. Why isn't The New Yorker higher? There's a distinction with The New Yorker, I think, which is that the goal of those podcasts, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, appears to be to get people to stop listening to the podcast and to read the magazine. <laughs> I don't want to like. I don't want to trash talk the New York. No, that's, right? a, I, I, yeah. I, that's not even necessary. Right. Like, I think that's like they're talking about stories that are in the magazine yeah, that yeah. week. Like, I don't. I, I, right. that's not trash talk. That's right. like they're supporting material for like yes. the, the mothership. Yes, and it seems to me like if they were New Yorker stories done as a podcast, uh-huh. they would probably have the same reach as what. As the New Yorker, as yeah, what yeah. you're doing, or whatever, like, like yeah, yeah, if no, they were that, standalone so artifacts. So you're saying what I'm saying. So I, the truth is, we don't know, right? Right now, like, what seems to get you to the top is sort of like, like Serial has shown, like, and Serial's numbers are like sort of like so amazingly insane. Yeah, um, they're like doubling everybody else, right? You know, Serial's like a, a hit basic cable TV show. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I mean, I feel like uh, like the most popular talk product ever I think is the Howard Stern show and like could we do a podcast version of Howard Stern like that would be awesome like I would love to do that you know I would love to find a talent as like red hot and, and compelling as Howard Stern and give them an hour show every day you don't have like a evangelical belief in the narrative stuff that's just what you know how to do it's what I know how to do and it seems easy it seems like there there's there's plenty of room to play there and it seems like why like that's what I know how to do best you know that's what we're going to start with but I don't think we have to stay there yeah um, I want to talk a little bit with what you actually did start with, yeah. which is your podcast about starting the company. Yeah, Man, there's so much good tape 
<laughs> yes, there is. There's so much good tape. It's like uh, it's like endless good tape. And one of the things I found myself wondering while I was listening to it. I mean, I am also like ha- have a co-founder and I'm working on a business, so like there's a bunch of uh-huh. things that were just like really heartening to hear you go through. And there's a lot of it that felt like uh, very brave. I was like, I was impressed that you were putting it out there, you know. Except I kept finding myself thinking about like, does he know the ending? Oh yeah. No, I didn't know it at all. You didn't know it at all. So, oh, no. Oh, no. Not at all. Were you confident that it was going to work out? It seems like it was like generally a pretty happy ending. Yes, it was a very happy ending. Yeah. Was I confident it was going to work out? I was, although I'm not exactly sure why. Like, I, I was. A lot of the good tape is the moments where maybe you didn't think it was going to work out. Oh, yeah. No, that's the best stuff. No, and that was like one of the things like that was like really, really weird about doing this project is that like as a producer, I knew that, you know, like I know the part where like Chris Sock is like, you're doing this all wrong. Here, let me give my pitch back to you. Like I was like, holy shit, that's good tape. Right. You're sitting there being like, like, this is is terrible for my business, but it's really good for the podcast. Yeah, exactly. And then the the part where like that guy, one of the investors, like we're at this meeting and like we do this big pitch and it's going really well. And then he's like, and then I say, are you in? And he's like, actually. And then they say, they shoot us down on tape. And they say, like, no, at this point, no. And there's this kid who does the whole sort of, like, the the math of it for us. Like, sort of, like, you don't have a business acquisition model and all this sort of stuff. I was like, that is, that was great. That was, a, I, the producer in me was like, that was a great moment. And then the person trying to start the business was like, god damn it. I thought they were in. Yeah. It was really frustrating. And so it was a really a sort of a schizophrenic experience. Like, knowing that, like, on the producer side, like, knowing that this was good. And then, on the you know, but, like, also just wanting it to be over and not wanting to feel that tension. Same thing with, like, when we made that, like, the Twitter mistake. We did an episode about this this mistake we made on one of our ads and that was like genuinely gut-wrenchingly like i was like oh my god this i've destroyed our company and like in retrospect it's ridiculous like a tweet isn't gonna destroy you but like for that day it was like our first sort of mini crisis and for a day i felt like this is horrible like i've set us back months and like we might not recover and like you know we've blown all the goodwill and like people are gonna turn against us now it's just like a horrible feeling and like and at I, the same time you were recording everything we were recording it because i was like this is gonna be good <laughs> I wish the drama didn't have to be centered in my stomach, <laughs> you know, but yeah. But you put it there. Yeah, no, I know, I know. Along those lines, there's this, there's this moment that came up in a recent one, which is kind of the tension between being like a business person and being an artist. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in the show that sort of gets resolved and there's some things that, that are left unresolved. And that felt like one of the things that's sort of unresolved. Yeah. Which is that tension, right? It's like, this is bad for my business, but good for the show. If you had to fall on one side, like, would you rather have had a good show or had it, have it go well for the business? <laughs> well, uh, it's it's complicated, right? Because the show right now is the business. It's super yeah. good for the business. Yeah. So the show is doing well and the show is funding the business right now. Like, we've got way more listeners than we thought and, like, we're getting, you know, good revenues on our ads. And so, like, that's that's putting us ahead of where we thought we were going to be because of we weren't banking on startup you know, bringing in this much money at this point. So, so at this point, like anything that's good for a startup, the podcast I'm happy with because it's also good for the business where it's going to be hard. I think for me, if we are to grow into like an actual large, you know, media company with like multiple properties and multiple shows and like we're, you know, bottom lines and big, a big staff and stuff, we're eventually gonna have to start doing shows that like, I personally don't like that much. 
because of like the law of averages or because you just can't have your hand in everything? Just because, well, no, just because like, you know, eventually you're going to want to start, maybe there's a great business in like a, a needlepoint podcast or whatever. You know what I mean? Maybe it's like a really, maybe it's a slam dunk. From there's, a business there's perspective, good, there's good tape in needlepoint. Yeah, and well, no, but like maybe there's like a whole group of people who love needle, needlepointing and they've been brought into the world. I don't know, you know what? I, I don't know, but I feel like, you know, just like there's a lot of stuff out there that I don't that's really popular that I don't listen to very much. And like I would be like, I don't, it's not to my taste, but like it does well. There's like stuff at the top of the charts that like does very well that I listen to. There's a lot of stuff at the top of the charts that I actually do like, which is sort of really comforting, but like. Are we going to get to a point where, like, we have to do a show that, like, I personally don't like that much, but, like, you know, a shock jock or, like, some sort of morning, morning zoo show or, you know what I mean, the first morning zoo show on the podcast world or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, Mickey and the Mad Dog, you know, like, <laughs> coming to you live, you know, whatever. Don't yeah. talk badly about Mike and the Mad Dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mike and the Mad Dog. No, I mean, I, I was the, not the please actual. Get, please get back together, Mike and the Mad Dog. Not the actual Mike <laughs> and the Mad Dog. I was using that more generally, like the Mike and the Mad Dog. If phenomenon. you can bring Mike and the Mad Dog back together, <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a boon. So, Mike and the Mad Dog, if you're out there and you guys want to do a podcast. They're definitely out there. Yeah. The moment you're not sure where you fall is when the business needs to do a show that you, the producer, thinks is kind of shitty. Me, the for lack of a better word, for, to use the pretentious word, the artist, you know, the person who's like, my sole job used to be producing right. this stuff. And like, and in that sense, the only sort of compass was sort of like, do I like this? And if I like it, can I figure out ways that other people might like it as well, but it proceeded from me. It was like my taste, my aesthetic, my curiosity, whatever. And at a certain point, that that, that can't guide things anymore. It, it has to be the aesthetic of groups of people, of different audiences out there. And if, and if like there's an audience out there that really wants a podcast that we can deliver that I don't particularly like that much, we should deliver it. You know what I mean? Like that seems like it's a no-brainer from a business perspective. Do you think that you will remain curious and engaged at that point? Like, will you want to keep doing it? I don't know. At this point, it's a distant problem, and it's a very, very, it's very much a problem of sort of like, it's a hypothetical problem. Like, because right now, there isn't really a tension between, you know, growing this business and my art, to use the ridiculous, pretentious word that we've chosen. Right now, you're like, your art is the business. Yeah, exactly. And that's awesome. That my art is the business is amazing. And that's like, awesome. But I feel like, the way we're building the company right now, it, it won't continue to be that way. Like, you know, like it will guide, it, you know, my tastes will guide our choices for, you know, the next year or two years, something like that. That's been part of the, the tension of listening to you on startups that's been so compelling to me is it's about whether you can do something on the scale that you aspire to do it in and be sort of like true to yourself or whether you have to on some level uh, become a douchebag. <laughs> exactly. And that gets back to the, the, you know, like I think the way this tension manifests itself for me is sort of like how big do we want to get? Do we want to get big to the point where I'm like I have to be thinking about this stuff? Or can we just sort of like can we grow like a nice-sized media company off of like 10 or 15 things that I personally like? And maybe we can. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing that's sort of crazy is sort of like it's entirely possible that we could. Is that the best case scenario? I mean, for some of our investors, it's maybe not the best case scenario. I think for most of our investors, it probably is, as long as we're like, like once you reach an audience of half a million or a million people, like if we can get to that level with a bunch of shows, then you can bring in like decent revenue. Like you can bring, you're, you're like, a, if you have 10 shows with a million listeners, you know, you're like, you know, tens of millions of dollars in revenue and like you could be a, a pretty big 
we'd be 10x at that point if that right. was the case. Yeah. Although it seems entirely unlikely to me that if you had 10 shows that were getting a million listeners, that you'd be like, all right, great, we did it. <laughs> I guess so, right? Like, if you'd done it, you'd be like, let's get that Needlepoint show in here. Uh, let's fucking do it again. Like, right. that that is the instinct, right? I mean, that ambition in some way is what led you to start this. Yeah. If you were just comfortable with what was aesthetically pleasing to you, then you would just be still at this I don't American know. Life. I mean, but I have pretty mainstream taste on the other hand. <laughs> like, I do like, you know, I, no, yeah, like, I loved Seinfeld. You know, I like, you know, I watch football. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, it's not like, you know, I mean, I think that's, that could be also the key is that we are sort of like, like we've been thinking of ourselves as highbrow, but we're basically sort of just sort of like right in the middle and like, they're just, just purely people just don't know about it. And once they know about it, they like it. Like, I have thought of public radio as this sort of, like, elite sort of thing, you know? Like, sort of like this, like, acquired taste that's only of a certain, you know, whatever. It's, like, super bougie and super sort of, like, rarefied, you know? But one of the weird things about startup is that, like, just a lot of people that are not public radio fans, that are, like, are not, like, you know, people that I would nef- necessarily have thought of as the audience are listening to it and loving it in a way that, like, makes me feel like I think public radio had this weird sense of itself where it was actually much more mainstream than it even thought of itself as. And it mm-hmm. just it just didn't market itself that way. And so people didn't know about it or something. How are you feeling about, like, the future of public radio? You bu- are you bullish on that? How am I feeling about the future of public radio? Uh, I'm I'm bullish on parts of it. First of all, the change never happens fast. So, like, I think in uh, 20 years, will the, will there be drive time radio? 30 years? Probably not the way we think about it now, right? So, like, terrestrial radio carried by satellite, you know, you know, delivered to radios and cars. Like, I don't think that's probably not going to be around in the too distant future. But, like, you know, listenable stuff, you know, that, that people want to hear, I think that's definitely, like, I feel like I'm betting my you know the company on that and so to the extent that public radio can deliver is one of the best delivery mechanisms for that stuff i think the future is bright i think the reason i was asking so much about the tension between like the business and the art thing i had this moment uh recently i went and like spoke to a j school class Uh and um i think that i was supposed to like uh create a presentation but i didn't Uh and so i just walked in and uh and was kind of like (laughs) hey uh, do you guys did, have any questions? When did it dawn on you that you were supposed to have something prepared? Uh, the, uh, like one second before I walked in the classroom, <laughs> like I it was like it was just it had been like a vague invitation, it's like a bad dream. It was terrible. Anyway, uh-huh. so I was just like, I don't know. Let's talk. Well, you can ask questions, and half the questions I would say from this class of student journalists were um, about starting a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed quite clear to me that their aspirations upon leaving journalism school were to figure out how to start something themselves. Right. Because uh, maybe their jobs weren't there or whatever. And uh, these questions started mounting. Like, at some point, I was just like, you know, there's like another school on this, on this campus very close to us that's like a <laughs> business school <laughs> where maybe you could learn. I, you know, the, the, they would have better answers to these questions. You might be in the wrong uh-huh. school if you're right. really interested in the business of this stuff. Right. There's like a bunch of people right. over there who are really smart about the business. Like these people mm-hmm. can teach you how to write stories. And then um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a totally perfect moment where I like, um, 
I left, you know, it ended. And I was kind of just like, wow, that was weird. Why we were talking about business the whole time? And then the professor walked me out and we like got in the elevator and he was like, um, before you go, I really wanted to run my startup idea by you. And I was just kind of like, oh God. <laughs> but we're definitely in a startup bubble. Yeah. Well, but the question is, like, aside from why the market was right and like people are mm-hmm. moving to digital audio and, uh, mm-hmm. and all that stuff, A, what made you want to make the leap where you were doing the business and where the business was on you and the business had the chance to be really successful or fail, which is a little bit different than public mm-hmm. radio and nonprofits and stuff? And secondly, like, do you think you could have done it at any point before now? So I think there are a bunch of really young people, some of whom may be listening to the show right now who are thinking about how, man, I can't find, I cannot get in the door at any of these places. I need to just like try and start my own thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether you think you could have done this earlier. Uh, I don't, uh, a little bit. I mean, I feel like part of it is that like all these dynamics that are going on, you know what I mean? Like, so, so I don't, I, I don't think I could have done it much earlier. There wasn't like a, a robust ad market in podcasts, right? Like right now, a lot of our problems are solved for us. Like, you know, so like, the problem of selling ads on your podcast, right? Like if I would, if I'd started this five, five years ago before the ad seller that we both use, <laughs> Midroll, we would have had to come up with like a way of like selling our ads, and we would have had to like develop all those relationships ourselves, and we would have had to do all that stuff. And so I don't think the market was there, so like I don't think there was that many listeners enough. Um, so so I don't think I could have done it. And then me personally, I certainly wasn't ready to. I think for me that was the, that's the biggest thing is that like I'm really like late to stuff. Like I like it took me forever to get into journalism. I'm old now, you know. I'm almost fifty, you know. I've just been always this way. Like I've, it just takes me a long time to like do anything. And it wasn't until I was like, you know, around this age, that I was like, I think I could run something. I could I could manage some people and like try to take on the challenge. But I would not have been ready to do it before this. So to me, that was part of the, like that's exciting. That's the exciting part is sort of like running. Like running the company is exciting, you know, and like having employees and and like having, you know, creating a hospitable environment where people are excited about doing stuff. And like, that's all exciting now. And I I don't think it would have been before. It would have just been stressful and I wouldn't have been good at it. How many more episodes of Startup are you going to do? Like, can can you just keep documenting this forever? No, no, no. And I feel like at a certain point, like, I mean, so there's a big sort of letdown. Like, I mean, that's part of the problem is sort of like. It's way more exciting to watch a house burning down than a house being built, right? Like, and so, uh, and so, like in the beginning, when there's like lots of like tension and lots of like you know, like I'm falling flat and like there's like, am I going to do it? Am I not? There's like all this tension built into it, and now that tension is sort of resolved a little bit. So the the goal is to sort of transition to documenting other companies, um, and that's going to happen in the next month or two. We have a couple more podcasts about our company going forward and like last week again fortunately for the podcast unfortunately for us was like a really rough week uh which we're gonna be talking about on the podcast so like there is like you know so there's more tension back in it but i don't i mean i feel like at a certain point it's just sort of like okay what are they gonna say at the story meeting this week you know what i mean like it's sort of like those guys just went to work again yeah exactly (laughs) right uh so yeah so so no we're 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 very like we're i feel like already we've had a couple episodes that i think are good but yeah i mean 
there's like a there's not much tension. There's pretty yeah, there's a pretty significant difference between will I be able to raise this money, my family's going into debt, and my wife who is awesome is like clearly very anxious. Right. And there's like one point five million dollars in the bank. Yeah. <laughs> That's like you, it's hard to get back over that wall once you've jumped it, you know. Right. Exactly. You know, there's like a couple things like we've been like the the tension this week has been sort of like people are like burnt out like it's just been like this grind yeah. getting out the shows out and that's like that's a real that's a real issue but but i think yeah we're, we're definitely ready to wind it down and start start talking about other companies well i look forward to it yeah thank you for taking the time thank you it was really I, fun it looks like while the boss was in here recording this everyone left okay <laughs> thanks for listening to long form i'm max linsky my co-hosts are aaron lammer and evan ratliff Our editor, who did a particularly good job on that episode, is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks so much to them. Thanks to our sponsors, Alarm Grid, Tiny Letter, and Lynda.com. And thanks very much to Alex Bloomberg for taking the time and teaching me a little something about uh, good tape. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.